Hello, and welcome to the 31st episode of Till Death Do Us Part. I'm still Daniel. And I'm still Melissa. Okay, honey, how you doing? I am doing good. Are you holding up? You know what I realized is the more of these stories I hear, Mm -hmm. I start to realize we're doing just fine. Oh, we're doing great. Don't you people think that when you hear this stuff, you read stuff like this or hear these stories, you go, you know what? I think I'm doing pretty good. Yep. Every time. Okay. So we're just going to jump right back in. You ready? I'm ready for the um, conclusion conclusion (laughs) to the cunnilingus Uh, desiring aunt. Oh. There were four witnesses who lived in Jack's complex. These are their accounts. Okay. Okay. Witness number one. The neighbor across the hall heard the dog start barking around 1.45 a.m. The dog was barking frantically and sounded scared. She then heard what sounded like a fight or a tussle, then a loud, hard thud. She then heard someone say, Don't you do this to me! It got quiet after that. The dog, Rocky, was still barking, and she heard a man's voice yell out, Take that dog inside! She heard someone answer, All right, I'm bringing him in now. The dog didn't stop barking, though. The dog started barking louder and more frantic. She then heard the condo door open and slam shut. She thought it was a man because she heard loud and heavy running down the hallway. Oh, boy. Okay, so this was the woman that lived directly across the hallway from him. Gotcha, okay. Witness number two. A tenant on the first floor apartment was awoken at about 1.40 a.m. by the dog Rocky barking. She heard a horrible scream. She walked out of her apartment and outside. She looked up at the second floor balcony and tried to quiet the dog since Jack had been in trouble before for his dog barking. She noticed his condo was all lit up, but the curtains were drawn. She heard a third floor tenant yell down and say, take that dog inside. Then she saw someone open the balcony door and let the dog inside. She figured it was a family squabble and went back inside her apartment. As she closed her door, she heard large, heavy footsteps running down the stairs. When she opened her door, she saw a large man jump into a white car that had been parked in the Mossler assigned parking spot all week and that Candy Mossler had been driving in the days leading up to the murder. He peeled out of the parking lot and didn't turn on his headlights till he turned onto Crandon Boulevard. Crandon Boulevard is the main traffic road on the quay. It's the only route connecting the island to Miami. She then told the detective that she was too wired to go back to sleep. She was making breakfast at about 4 a.m. and saw Candy, Rita, and the three kids entering the building at around 4 a.m. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. Okay. Witness number three. The dog's barking woke he and his wife at 1.45 a.m. He jotted down the time because he intended on making a complaint the next day. He then stepped out onto his balcony, looked down to the second floor balcony, and saw the dog barking and scratching at the door to be let in. 
he yelled for someone to let the dog inside and the sliding door of Mossler's apartment opened and a young male voice said, yeah, I'm letting him in now. He then went inside and went back to sleep. Witness number four. At 2 a.m., a tenant returning home from work saw a large man with long, dark hair walking out of the building's east exit. The stranger was not running, but was moving quickly, and he was all dressed in black. The tenant did not recognize him, but the stranger's face was turned to the side, looking over his own shoulder, gazing at where he had just come from, and did not see the tenant. They collided. The stranger did not stop or speak, but continued walking quickly and got into a white sedan in the parking lot. The tenant made his way inside, and he and the first floor witness watched the man peel out of the parking lot and turn his lights on when he turned onto Crandon Boulevard. Sounds like pretty consistent. Yeah. I like that the the guy that lived above Jack was like all ready to bitch about the dog. I'm guessing these are nice... It's a nice condo complex. It's a very, and I call it an apartment, but it's not an apartment. It's like a really nice condo complex. That, right, in the Keys, in the Florida in Keys. In the Florida Keys yeah. that was one block from the ocean. Right, that's where I want to retire. Well, not now, because now in front of this condo complex is like a bunch of buildings and stuff. So they can barely see the ocean. What? I know. They built up around it. Ugh, idiots. All right, now we're going to get to Candy. Oh, good. I like Candy. Yeah. So Candy was questioned by investigators as she lay in Jack's bed with a cold compress on her head. Candy told them that she had brought Rita and three of her youngest children to Florida at the end of May to see Jack. One of their youngest children had stayed behind in Texas to attend a summer camp. They usually spend the day with Jack at the beach, and she and her children would stay at a hotel for the evening. Because Jack only had two bedrooms. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Candy had been suffering with her headaches for the last few days. She even went to the hospital for treatment the night of the 24th and the night of the 26th. Around 12.45 a.m., Candy and her four children had left the condo to buy postage stamps and mail off some bills at the DuPont Hotel in downtown Miami. Candy's 20-year-old daughter Rita was driving the car a red convertible. Candy began coming down with one of her debilitating headaches and needed to be treated. Candy had already been treated for a migraine on the 24th and the 26th at Jackson Memorial Hospital. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Okay. Okay, I have one comment. Okay. Yeah. If she's receiving the equivalent of $145,000 a month Mm -hmm. today, right? Right. Why would she physically drive to buy stamps and mail something? Oh, my God. You are so smart. I would not. I would pay someone to wipe my butt. That is If a I were getting 145000 a month. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. I wouldn't do anything. No. It would, be, it would be basically like, where should we cruise to today? <laughs> yes. And that's it. There wouldn't be any. I'd have private drivers. Everything, private chartered planes, there'd be nothing. You wouldn't, you sure as I wouldn't be going and buying stamps. No, no. You would you have would, something you to do You would have a you. special person at the post office that would come and hand pick up everything from you. 
It's actually a hundred and eighty thousand dollars a month. Oh, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. buck eighty. Okay, it's even right. it's even worse or better. Yeah, <laughs> you would not even deal with bills. You have a personal um, accountant. What yeah. am I trying to bookkeeper? Someone that yeah. does all that. You wouldn't even look at them. Right. All right, I'm done. And that was a question by a lot of people. Oh, okay, good. They arrived at the hospital around one thirty a.m. Received treatment and headed back to the apartment, not their hotel, at around 3.45 a.m. One of their sons noticed the light coming from under the apartment door and assumed Jack had waited up for them to return. Candy walked into the apartment around 4.15 a.m., saw the blood all around the living room and kitchen, lifted the orange blanket, and saw Jack's body took the kids into the back bedroom, and had Rita call Jack's physician. They then asked Candy what she thought had happened. (laughs) She told them it had to have been a robbery gone bad. She knows she had $200 bills laying out on the kitchen counter that was gone. Jack always carried a large amount of cash in his wallet, and the cash was missing. And some of her jewelry that was in the dresser is now gone. The intruder must have been startled by Jack thinking that nobody was home and then killed him. Uh-huh. After writing down her statement, detectives told Candy that a murder where the cause of death is multiple stab wounds is almost always a crime of passion and done by someone who knows the victim. Candy then changed her story. Of course she did. She then told detectives that in the year prior, Jack had gone through some health issues And that had changed his personality. Candy said that when Jack moved to Florida, he had made some new male friends. Jack was now homosexual (laughs) and would meet strange men in bars and invite them back to the apartment for a late night tryst. Candy told them that Jack had many gay lovers and that the murder of Jack must have been a tragic end to a gay affair. I can't stand this woman. How did she? Okay, so how did how did she just drop that? Uh, she just pulled it out of somewhere. I don't know. Yeah. All right. All right here's where it starts to get even more complicated. <laughs> Luckily, two of the condo's residences had seen a man drive away in the white sedan that Candy had been driving that week. Turns out that one of Jack's finance companies had just repoed a white 1960 Chevy Bel Air sedan. And it had been delivered to Candy Mossler on the 23rd of June by a company porter at the Miami airport where she and Mel had just returned from a vacation to the Bahamas. There it is. An all points bulletin was put out on the license plate and make and model. Within two hours, it was found in the short term parking lot at the Miami International Airport. The doors were unlocked and the keys were tucked up in the driver's side visor. An automated parking ticket was also found. The timestamp showed that it had entered the parking lot at 5.19 a.m., four hours after the murder. Flakes of blood were found inside the car and a smudged fingerprint on the dashboard. Candy stated that she had asked the company porter to pick up the car and take it back to the office since she no longer needed it. She says the car was picked up the day before the murder. Oh, boy. Later that evening, the county fingerprint technicians lifted that one distinct palm print from the counter in the kitchen of the condo. 
a match came back from the FBI's national database. Want to guess whose it was? Oh, gosh. I have no idea. (laughs) Melvin Powers. Of course it was. Detectives had no idea who Melvin Powers was or that he was having an incestuous affair with his aunt. Oh, geez. Six more fingerprints were lifted from the interior of the Bel Air. All were a match to Mel. The last known address for Mel was at 3699 Willowick Road in Houston, Texas. Oh, my gosh. Same as Candy Mossler. They also found the name M. Powers Mossler on the flight manifesto for the very first flight out of Miami to Houston at 7.50 a.m. on the morning of June 30th. So on the morning of the murder. Right. A mere six hours after Jack had been murdered. It was then discovered that a M. Powers Mossler appeared on another flight manifesto from Houston to Miami on Monday, June 29th, arriving at 6.05 p.m., seven hours before the murder. I don't, it doesn't seem like he put much thought into this. I mean, he put a lot of thought into doing it, mm. but not preventing from being found out. I feel like people are It seems so like he didn't even attempt any sort of cover-up. No, not at, at all. all. He didn't even wear gloves. That's yeah, the first rule of murder. Wear gloves. Or don't wear gloves. Don't wear gloves. Don't wear gloves. Don't murder someone and don't wear gloves. Right. <laughs> don't wear gloves. Right. Everything I've learned yeah. about covering up a murder, I learned on Dexter. Oh, yes. So, so far, True. he has violated everything yes. from Dexter. So, go ahead. Okay. Detectives had a name, and now they had a mugshot photo of Mel. Nice. Since Mel Powers was in Miami for less than 14 hours, what had he done? Where had he gone? Detectives began asking local businesses along Crandon Boulevard if they'd seen a man that looked like Mel's 1961 mugshot. At the foot of the causeway lies a Holiday Inn. And inside the hotel, there is a bar called The Stuffed Shirt. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why. The bartender recognized the photo of Mel and said he had been in twice Monday night. He remembered him because he was dressed in all black. Mel wasn't dressed like their usual tourist crowd. The first time he came in was between 8.30 and 9 in the evening. He had ordered a double scotch and drank it in less than a minute. Mel then asked for an empty Coke bottle, a king-sized one. The bartender gave him the bottle, and Mel slipped it into his inside jacket pocket and then left. The second time Mel came in was around 12.15 a.m. Mel was still by himself, ordered another double scotch, drank it, and left. Before he left, he asked where the hotel's payphones were located. Oh, my gosh. Detectives needed to make sure that Candy's alibi matched up to hospital records at Jackson Memorial Hospital in downtown Miami. Candy's nurse was questioned, and the hospital timeline matched up with Candy's. The nurse did say it was odd that Mrs. Mossler had asked her to make sure to make a note of her arrival time and that she had received three phone calls to the nurse's station that visit because there were no direct lines in the examination room. The first two phone calls, Candy spoke to someone for no more than a minute or two. 
The last phone call was received after Candy had left the hospital and the caller had hung up. The hospital switchboard operator remembered the phone calls because a man kept calling saying he was Mrs. Mossler's physician. No name, just physician, and that he needed to speak with her. She said the man had a southern accent and didn't sound old enough to be a doctor. Maybe an accent you'd hear in, I don't know, Alabama? (laughs) Investigators had enough circumstantial evidence to arrest Mel for first-degree murder. Yeah, you think? (laughs) They aren't very good at this. Mm -mm. Uh. I know. Mel was taken into custody by the Texas Rangers at 5.26 p.m. on July 3rd and subsequently confessed to the murder of Jacques Mosler. Wow. Mel's first phone call was made to Willowick, and 30 minutes later, Candy had hired Mel, the best damn attorney in Texas, Mr. Percy Foreman. Sure. I could do an entire episode just on this guy. All I'm going to say is that if Percy was around during the O.J. Simpson trial, O.J. would have only had to hire him as his defense attorney and not those 12 other dudes that he hired. Wow. Percy Foreman was flamboyant, loud, theatrical, flashy, and did his job better than anybody. Percy also required a $200,000 retainer, to which Candy did not have, since her funds were frozen after Jack's murder. Candy and Percy came to an agreement that Percy would take possession of six pieces of Candy's finest jewels as collateral. A canary teardrop diamond pin, a diamond-encrusted gold watch, and a set of four blue-white diamond pieces. These were all gifts from Jack to Candy over the span of their 15-year marriage. Dang. So two hundred grand back then had to have been a lot. Yeah, it had to be like almost a million dollars. Jeez. Mm-hmm. All right. During Mel's confession, he revealed that when he returned from Miami, he had gone straight to Willowick, Willowick to change clothes. Inside Mel's closet, a detective found a jacket and a pair of slacks, which he could clearly see blood splatter on. Detectives also found love letters addressed to Melvin from a C. Mossler hidden in his desk at his office. I'm not going to read them because they are actually really nasty and a little bit of bile comes out of my mouth when I read them. (laughs) Boy. There were also photos found of the two as a couple at nightclubs, restaurants, and on vacations. Jack was not in any of the photos. Nope. On July 6th, detectives arrived at Candy's estate to question her on all the new evidence that had been discovered. They were met by a security guard who informed them that Candy had checked herself into St. Luke's Hospital from exhaustion, chest pains, and severe migraine headaches. Candy was off limits, but from her hospital bed, she denied knowing anything about Jack's murder to all the reporters who were calling and being ushered up to her hospital room. She really played into the media using them to get her poor me, I'm the victim narrative out to the public. So the fact that th- that Mel clearly murdered her husband and that she hired the best attorney to defend him, mm-hmm. doesn't that automatically make her look very guilty herself? 
It didn't. This girl knew how to play the game. All right. A few weeks later, Candy checked herself into the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota for severe migraines and a blood disease. Candy was healthy enough to receive treatment as an outpatient and still travel to Houston for board meetings because according to Jack's will, his company was now run by his wife, Candy. But, okay. She hasn't been charged with anything. That's true. Mm-hmm. During Candy's time away, some new evidence was brought to light. Oh, here it is. Candy had lied about the white Bel Air being picked up at the apartment building the day before the murder. There was no record of the car ever being picked up at the building and taken back to the repo lot. But Candy's daughter Rita did say that her mom dropped Mel off at the Miami International Airport on the 24th for his return flight to Houston. Rita stated that her mother had called her from the airport to come pick her up. Candy could no longer drive due to a migraine. The white Bel Air was left at the airport, and there's no record of anyone ever retrieving that car till it was found in the short-term parking lot a few hours after the murder. Investigators now had enough evidence to arrest Candy for accessory to murder. There you go. See, again, they did all this work dropping off cars, someone picking someone up from the airport. Mm-hmm. They're super rich. Yeah. Why you, are they doing this you all would, themselves? You would have drivers do that. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Well, yeah, because she had. She said she had a porter come and get the car from the condo. Yeah, if you were getting that level of money, chances are she never sat behind a wheel, which is interesting. On July 23rd, 1965, after a year in the Mayo Clinic... Candy was now well enough to turn herself in to the Miami authorities. Candy was arrested at 6.50 p.m. at the Miami International Airport. Candy spent 14 days in lockup before she posted bail for she and Mel at $50,000 each. Mel had been transferred to Miami. Wow. From Texas, from a Texas jail to Miami jail. I'm surprised they granted bail. You're going to be surprised by a lot. Okay, good. The trial began on January 17th, 1966 in Miami, Florida. 47-year-old Candy and 24-year-old Mel were being tried together. Candy had hired six defense attorneys with Percy Foreman taking the lead. The jury consisted of 12 male jurors and three male alternate jurors. The trial was a media frenzy. No person under the age of 21 was allowed in the courtroom. Spectators would bring their lunch into the courtroom so their seat would not be taken. In candy fashion, she was very dramatic during the court proceedings. She would be excused for headaches, nausea, and would faint periodically. Candy even wore a neck brace on some days. The judge at one point told Candy that she was not allowed to lay across two chairs in his courtroom and that she needed to sit up. Oh, my god! It sounds like when you take your kids somewhere and you're like, don't you lay down on there. Don't, oh, no, sit up. Sit up like church. Like, right. Sit up. So I'm going to tell you some of the most sensational moments that happened during the trial. All right. Mel's confession was thrown out. He had not been read his Miranda rights. Oh. And he never explicitly said that he had murdered Jack. He never fully Ugh. said that he had murdered Jack. All right. Okay. Candy's diary was not allowed into evidence. 
and neither was a nine-page letter that Mel wrote to Aunt Candy from jail. A fingerprint analysis technician admitted in cross-examination by the defense that there's no way to tell when the fingerprints in the Bel Air and palm print in the condo were left since Mel had been in Miami the week prior to the murder. Oh, jeez. The defense took the stance that it was Jack's own fault that he was murdered due to his homosexuality, to which there has never been any proof of, and that that led Candy to seek companionship from her nephew. What? I know. This is crazy. You guys are going to get pissed, actually. How is that a viable explanation? It's not. When it, and even if it were true, it doesn't, how is that? It doesn't matter. Yeah. Okay. okay. So this Sorry. is going to piss you off even more. They also stated that Jack was a transvestite, masochist, sadist, a voyeur, and a swinger. But there is absolutely no evidence to support any of those claims. Well, how can they just say that? In the late 1960s, it seems like it was much worse to be a homosexual male than it was to be in an, in an incestuous relationship with a blood relative. You know, that actually seems like that makes sense. Yeah. I could I That's could see what I that. got out of yeah, it. I could see that. Yeah. It's ridiculous. They didn't even, they hardly talked so, about Mel and Candy's relationship but they just went to town on Jack, and there was no evidence whatsoever. Man, this defense—not that that even this, mattered. But this, I mean, uh, they criminal, were lying. Criminal defense attorney is awesome. Oh, he was a piece of so shit. He just had to introduce doubt into yes, these jurors, knowing that's all he, he had to knew, do. He knew his audience. Mm-hmm. His, his audience were all male. Right. And Southern so, men. Yeah. Right. So they're automatically, he's going to go, well, this guy was homosexual. Right. And a trans. And they're like, oh, right. well. Well, he, it's his fault. Yeah. Yeah. All right. The hair that was in Jack's hand did not belong to Mel. What? Yeah. Okay. Okay. But this is the late 1960s. Right. That's hair true. analysis isn't even 100% mm. today. Uh. Yes. Only two photos of the crime scene were allowed into evidence. One of Jack covered up by a coroner's sheet and one of the bloody kitchen. That's it. Those are the only pictures that were allowed in court. Are you serious? I swear. I swear. How's that possible? I don't know. The nurse and the switchboard operator from Jackson Medical were not allowed to testify that the voice they had heard on the other line was that of Mel. Lawyers for the defense were not present during the listening of Mel's voice on tape played for the two hospital employees. So their testimony became inadmissible. Oh, my gosh. I know. I know. Employees of Mel's were not allowed to testify that Mel had told them that he was in a sexual relationship with his aunt and that he had a sexual hold over her. Wow. The defense never called any witnesses. Percy Foreman spent the trial trying to confuse and intimidate witnesses and having evidence thrown out. Since the defense never called a single witness, which under Florida law means the defense gets to go last in closing arguments. You can just imagine Percy Foreman's show he put on for the jury, discrediting every witness and every piece of evidence. Oh, my gosh. I never knew that. 
I never crazy. knew that if you didn't call any witnesses, you get to go last in closing arguments. Never knew that. I guess you get what you pay for when yeah. it comes to lawyers. Yeah. Good Lord. The trial lasted two months. The jury deliberated for four days. What? At one point, the jury was deadlocked, but the judge made them go back into the jury room and hash it out. On March 6th, the jury came back with a not guilty verdict for both defendants. Oh, my gosh. The courtroom erupted in cheers and Candy and Mel kissed each other on the lips. And then Candy kissed each juror on the lips. Of course she did. Mel and Candy drove away from the courthouse together in a gold Cadillac as Candy blew kisses to the media and the crowd. They were free. I know. I know. Is everybody screaming right now? I hope everybody's screaming right now. (laughs) Please be where I am right now. What the hell kind of court was that? It was a shit show is what it was. Wow. (laughs) You know, the uh, kissing the jurors on the way out was a nice touch. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I'd make sure I did that if I was um, found not guilty for murdering you. I would would kiss all the jurors. Okay. Candy and Mel were together for another couple years playing house in the Houston mansion. Of course they were. In 1969, the couple broke up and Candy filed assault (laughs) charges against Mel for hitting her and trying to run her off the road. Okay, here's the thing. She is living and sleeping with someone who murdered her husband, but didn't just murder him, like annihilated his body, like total overkill. Yes, and she is sleeping with him. Yes. The the butcher of her husband it, she's sleeping with. Yes, 100%. And also happens to be her nephew. Re- See? Every time. That. Every time a little bile right in my throat. All right. Candy became quite the businessman. She had inherited all of Jack's companies. She turned $33 million into over $100 million in a few short years. Dang. Mm-hmm. Candy remarried in 1971. Her third husband was a self-employed electrical contractor named Barnett Garrison. Candy was 51 and Barnett was 32. Oh, oh my. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) In August of 1972, Barnett suffered brain damage after falling from the roof of the Houston mansion that they called Willowick. The hell is he doing on the roof? Barnett had climbed up the side of the three-story home to the roof to try to get to an open balcony door on the third floor. He had been locked out of the house after a drunken fight with Candy that night. Barnett plunged almost 40 feet to a concrete patio. The gardeners found him in the morning. Splat. Candy divorced him in November, and the fall was ruled an accident. Barnett spent 25 years living in an assisted living facility. Oh, he didn't die. He died on February 3rd, 2009. He fell off in 1970 or 1972. Gotcha. And he died in 2009. Yeah. You said it divorced him. I'm like, well, she, yeah, she divorced him. Mm -hmm. So he he survived. He survived. But not doing very well. No. And. Nope, he lived the rest of his life in an in, assisted, in, in, living, assisted facility. living facility. Isn't that sad? Holy crap. It's so sad. I hope she paid for all of that. 
God, I hate her. The assisted living facility? Yeah. I'm sure he did. Something nice, you know, like a... (laughs) Don't say it. Just smells like urine and pine salt. Okay. On October 8th, 2010, Melvin Powers was found dead at the ripe old age of 68 in his home in Houston. Mel had become a millionaire in real estate. A lot of the buildings in downtown Houston were at one time owned by Mel or built by Mel. He never married. His cause of death is still undetermined. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. How did he die? It just said cause of death still undetermined. Oh, okay. And this is 11 years after, and it's still undetermined. I tried. I tried to find it. No, no, it's fine. (laughs) I don't care. It's just, I don't know. Candace Witherby Johnson Mosler Garrison was found dead in Florida at the Fountain Blue Hotel on Miami Beach. Fountain Blue. Candy had summoned a doctor the night of October 25th, 1976, to treat a migraine. He had injected her with Demerol for pain and Phenergan for nausea. The following morning on the 26th, Candy was found lying face down in bed on top of five large pillows, dressed in a pink nightgown and a face full of makeup. (laughs) Her autopsy revealed that she had died from postural asphyxia caused by sedatives. Okay. Basically, she smothered herself with a pillow. How did she smother herself? Because she... She couldn't breathe through the pillow. Right? She couldn't breathe through the pillow, and she she couldn't move her head because she was sedated. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So she basically, her face went into the pillow, and then she couldn't move it because she was sedated. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, hope maybe the doctor was like, you know what? I finally have a chance to off this horrible woman. <laughs> Gave her an overdose. Her autopsy also revealed that she was a drug user. Oh. Candy had thousands and thousands of needle pricks in her buttocks from years of drug injections, resulting in her butt literally being as hard as a rock. What? Yes. I didn't know that was a thing. It like messes with the fat and the muscle, and then it makes it hard. Like they said her butt felt like a rock. So it was just... So many injections. There mm-hmm. was the tiniest bit of scar tissue each yes, time. And it turned hard. Uh-huh. There you go, folks. There's your answer <laughs> to having flab. You just inject the spot over the years with needles and you're good to go. That can't feel good, though. I can't. How can you sit on that? I don't know. You don't. <laughs> she you all... lay face down on pillows. Okay. That's probably why she was laying on her stomach. Well, because she doesn't want to sit on her butt. Well, because it's uncomfortable probably to lay on basically a rock. See? Oh, my gosh. That's what I'm here for. That's exactly what you're here for. She also had silicone injected directly into her breasts, which is illegal in the United States. Why wouldn't she just get the best plastic surgeon ever? I don't know. To fix everything. I don't know. Mel attended her funeral. Oh, boy. Candy is buried next to her husband, Jacques Mosler, in Arlington Cemetery. Jack's death is still considered unsolved by the Miami-Dade police. How is it unsolved? Because they were never convicted. But it, okay. There's never been anyone convicted for his murder. It's not unknown. It was just un... It's unsolved. Solved. Yes. 
Yes. I think we solved it. Always. We always solve this, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Okay, this is what I believe happened. So take it with a grain of salt. All right. But I have been immersed in this case for a really long time. Yes. Mel had obviously come back into Miami with the intention of killing Jack. Mel entered the apartment around 1.40 a.m., about an hour after Candy and the children left, and he attacked Jack, first hitting him with the king-size Coca-Cola bottle two times and shattering it. So he hit him in the head two times with this Coca-Cola bottle, and it shattered. Yep. Then he stabbed Jack 31 times in the chest. I think Jack was still alive since he had defensive wounds on his arms and hands. But he eventually succumbed to the attack. Mel rolled him in the orange blanket onto his stomach and then stabbed him in the back eight more times. Mel then cleaned up his hands and the weapon in the kitchen, leaving that palm print on the counter. He then took the money off the counter and all the cash out of Jack's wallet, made his way into the bedroom, and pocketed the jewelry from Candy's dresser. This was all part of the plan. Mel then let Rocky the dog back into the apartment and left, running down the staircase and getting into the white Bel Air that he had brought from the airport that Candy had left in the parking lot on the 24th. Mel then went back to the Holiday Inn and used their payphone to call Candy at the hospital to let her know that he had killed Jack. He drove back to the airport and left the car in the short-term parking lot and caught the first flight back to Houston. Perfect. You like it? That sounds exactly like what actually happened. And they never found the knife. That was never found. Hmm. Mm-hmm. You ready for a fun fact? Yes. Candy lied about her age. What? She wasn't born in 1920. Birth records show she was born in 1914, which made her six years older than people thought. Oh. So when when Candy and Mel began their affair, she was actually 48, oh. while Mel was 20, right. making her 28 years older than her nephew. Does that make it worse somehow? Absolutely, it does. (laughs) Yeah, she lied about her age constantly. Constantly. Well, I mean, I guess she looked good, so. Yeah, I mean, pictures of her. I want to see a picture of her. Yeah, she looks nice. They're all black and white, though, but, well, you know, whatever. That's all right. The only question I have about this case is the timeline. Witnesses and Candy put she and her children at the condo before 4.15 a.m., But Rita didn't call the physician until 4.45. What happened during those 15 to 20 minutes? I don't know. You know the question I have? What? What's with the physician that came and had absolutely no emotion and left? We never heard anything else about him. Because he was done. His job was done. But it's the personal physician. Did they call? They didn't call him as a witness or, well, I guess it doesn't matter, but. Yeah. That seemed really odd. Yeah. That he would just show up and go, yeah, he seems to be dead. All right. Uh, well, because Rita said that she didn't know if he was dead. Oh, okay. And then he was like, well, why didn't you call the police or an ambulance? And she was like, I was told to call you first. Yeah. Yeah. And so then he called the police and then came over as quickly as he could. All right. Yeah. So I don't know what happened in those 15 to 20 minutes. 
And the children have taken Candy's side since the very beginning. What? Yeah. Well, what the hell do they think happened? They think that it was a lover's, a gay lover murder. What? Yeah. <laughs> yes. The children believe her, that their father was now a homosexual, and he would have trysts with unknown men, there and that one of them zero- must have killed him. There was zero evidence of that. I don't know. They, Plus, loved, they loved their mom. There's clearly the unfortunate public displays of affection between the nephew and the aunt. Well, and the kids had to have seen other things happen. They were going on vacation all the time and living under the same roof. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What are the, what are, how do they explain that? Maybe they that? think that that is okay, but oh, their dad God. being homosexual was not, even though he wasn't. Yeah. That was, yeah. There was nothing about that. No. Mm -mm. So a huge source of information was from the book, No One is Perfect, The True Story of Candace Mossler and America's Strangest Murder Trial by author Ron Smith. I've never heard a trial like that. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I read a ton of articles. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. What do you think of my case? (laughs) That was amazing. I don't even know where to begin on it. It's just so much that's wrong. I know. (laughs) I know this this case was a doozy. That's for sure. I think that makes it even better or worse is that it happened back then. Yeah. And then all the money and everything, all that mixed together. Lots of money. Lots and lots of money. Mm -hmm. Gosh. That is a wild ride. So if you're really interested in this case, buy the book. Actually, it was free on Kindle. But I mean, really, what I gave you was a Cliff's Notes version of the trial. There's a lot of stuff that happened. So if this is really interesting to you, go check it out. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to tell you about one of the podcasts that I've been listening to. Okie dokie. Okay, because we're going to do that from now on. We're going to call out a great podcast. Okay, this one is called... You've listened to this one with me. This okay. one's called Night Classy. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, you know this one. So it's two teachers named Kat and Haley, and they like to get a little tipsy, <laughs> and they are a little explicit, but they're hilarious, and I adore them. And I'm going to read what they're about. Okay. Okay. A comedy podcast where two teachers unwind, sip wine, and each teach a lesson they can't teach at school. Anyways, they're a lot of fun. I like to just, I like to just listen to them. They make me laugh. And they're on YouTube now. I don't think you watch them on YouTube yet, but you have listened to me yeah, or listened to them with me. So they're really fun. Aren't they fun, Daniel? They are fun. Okay. <laughs> I like that they get, like you said, tipsy. That's, yeah. I guess that's a <laughs> nice way of putting it. Yeah, it's fun. That they get progressively more... <laughs> Which makes sense, because then by the time, especially some case like this that we just did. Oh, yeah. Oh, geez. Oh, gosh. They would be, they would do this one really good. That oh, would be my funny. gosh. Yeah, yeah, you need to drink to do this one. <laughs> I know. You're like, oh. oh. Okay. Well, thanks for listening. And I really hope that I made you horrifically uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, that one was pretty good. That was uh, definitely had the uncomfort, discomfort factor to it. Yeah. Definitely. If you want to reach us, the best way to do that is on Instagram. Yeah, Instagram. Be careful. For marriage, 
is a life sentence, unless you can get away with it. Oh, look at you adding another little tagline on the end. Just thought of it. <laughs> okay, bye. Bye. Bye.